Sunday worshiping with us. Uh, it is always a treat to be able to bring the Word of God to a group like this um, who wants that and who can bear that and uh, who keeps coming back for that. That is a phenomenon often today that is uh, not, not very often rather seen. And so bless you for that and your commitment to God's truth and, and His Word. You can make your way to the book of First Timothy. As most of you know, we've been making our way through These are uh, Timothy, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. And uh, it is to give guidance to leaders of churches, uh, you know, how we basically do business in the house of God. I like to call it doing God's business God's way. We, we do it in his way, not man's way. And you're starting to see some of those uh, characteristics here as we've been studying this uh, topic of a godly man in an ungodly generation. We have used that title just as an overarching theme, but it's for godly men and godly women and godly teenagers and godly children to, to sit up and pay attention to these things as we navigate through them. You will recall that we began the series entitled uh, or, um, with, with the theme that God is looking for a man. And we talked about the fact that this is not necessarily a corporate man. This is not necessarily a businessman. This is a man of character. We said that this will be a man of passion. We looked at uh, verse uh, 1 a few weeks back that this is a man who aspires. This is a man who has godly desires. They start in his heart, implanted by God himself, but they manifest in reaching forward towards godly aspirations and godly goals. Men of passion. We also talked about men of principle. Men who are above reproach. We said that that is that overarching theme of the study. It's one thing to have passion, but it can be misguided if you are not a man of principle. And we talked about those uh, traits where what it means to be above reproach. That man can't be called in. He can't be arrested, as it were, legitimately and charged in a spiritual way. And today we're going to continue with our theme here, having seen men of passion, men of principle. Today we're going to be talking about a very uncomfortable subject. I want to just say this from the beginning, especially for men, especially for this man. We're going to be talking about men of purity. It is a very, very challenging topic for all of us who bear the reality of manhood, but especially just being human, men and women, and the need to be men and women and to be a church of purity. What am I alluding to here? I'm alluding to verse 2 in our study here in 1 Timothy 3, talking first and foremost about the overseer and that he must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. We're going to be talking about what this means today under this general overarching principle of being men and women of purity. It's going to be a little uncomfortable today, guys. I'll tell you that from the start here. I do believe you're up for the task. I believe you're good for what we're going to talk about today because it's just facing reality, facing life, facing true-to-life issues biblically, realistically. We're going to talk about the, the pandemic that we're in, and it has very little to do with the coronavirus. There is a much worse pandemic that is haunting, especially men, especially men, stepping up to the high call of the ministry. We'll get back to that in a minute. I wanted to share with you an excerpt from 
an article written in the Journal of Ministry and Theology, an article written by Jim Showers, which he has entitled, Can Fallen Pastors Be Restored? And he writes in the introduction of this uh, essay, he says, a growing trend of pastoral immorality in America is creating a moral crisis in the church today. You think? The problem of pastoral immorality has become broadly known with the failure of several national television and radio ministry pastors in recent years. You would think he wrote this yesterday, right? It's a 20-year-old article. He, he goes on in this article, I'll spare you some of it, but he, he goes on saying that a, a national survey was conducted dealing with the topic of temptation in ministry. And it was mailed to 1,000 pastors in America. 300 responded to it. The results of the survey indicate there is great reason to be concerned. Listen to some of these results. The, the survey revealed of these one or 300 pastors who responded, 23% of them said, That since becoming a pastor, he has done something sexually inappropriate with someone other than his spouse. 12% said that they have had sexual intercourse outside of marriage since becoming a pastor. 18% admitted to having other forms of extramarital sexual contact. Of those pastors who have done something sexually inappropriate, only 4% said their church has ever found out about what they have done. That means to say you take 100 churches here, 100 people who responded in this regard uh, where, where there has been something inappropriate, four churches know about it. When asked whether they ever fantasized about someone other than their wives, 95% of pastors said yes, of which 61% admitted they do it daily, weekly, or even monthly. An amazing 39% of those pastors felt fantasizing about someone other than their wives was harmless. Another 20% said, it depends on the circumstances. Folks, even even if this survey is remotely close to reality, we are in a pandemic today of leadership. It goes on to say that a different study that 37% of ministers have been involved in sexually inappropriate behavior with someone in the church. And Baptist counselor Ray Woodruff estimates that 15% of pastors are involved in inappropriate sexual behavior. That is an epidemic when you're talking 15% of our pastors. And that's the pastors who respond to the survey. Those are the pastors who are honest with the survey. I, I never, when I, when I went away to Bible college, I never had in the furthest, remotest part of my mind The thought that I would see what I would see even up until this day when it comes to leadership in the church. It blew my mind. I mean, it first started when I was in college. And uh, hmm, I believe, I won't say his name, but a very well-known Calvary Chapel pastor in the uh, early 90s began having illicit relationships with someone other than his wife. And it, it hit the news, and it was a big wave through the, the Christian news. And I thought, you know, with, with respect to the school that I was attending, I said, yeah, it's over there, right? It's those guys. Until the president of the seminary that I was attending called us all into the basement room where he had the unfortunate task to announce that a dearly beloved, highly esteemed theology professor who, who I adored 
had committed adultery with his wife and was disqualified from the ministry and the continuing in his role at the seminary. Wow. Talk about cannon fire. Talk about hitting home. And I thought, well, surely we're done, right? Surely we're done. Well, it wasn't long after that that another uh, dear professor of mine who I actually dedicated the front page of my master's thesis to. His name is in the permanent record of, of the, the work that I, I did. He, he was my professor, and I thought, I, I owe this to you, and thanks. Disqualified. And I thought, well, good, I'm, I'm, I'm out of seminary, right? Let's get into the real world here. It wasn't long when the Willow Creek scandal happened, and I learned that not only was this man having illicit relationships with women other than his wife, in the pastor's study, in the pastor's study. Surely I thought I was beyond it, right? Until one of my best friends announced, my wife of 25 years is leaving me because I have been unfaithful to her. And it seems like the blows keep coming and coming and coming. I need not even mention some modern apologists, plural, by the way. One's really in the news. One is not quite as much in the news, but leading men for the church, and I use heavy air quotes, are defaulting, falling off the path, straying from the path of righteousness. Yeah, yeah, it's a pandemic today. It is an absolute pandemic. Where are the men of purity? This is what we're going to be getting at today. And man, I'm just so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here because there's probably men who wouldn't stand for a sermon like this. And there's probably people that, there's probably churches where this wouldn't be preached. I mean, this is as close to X-rated as you can get from the pulpit. I'll be delicate, kids. But I'm telling you, this is something that we must face. I hope you feel the weight of this this morning as to what does it mean to be a husband of one wife. It may not be what you think it says at first reading here. Let's dig a little bit deeper here. How can this be? How can this be in a culture? Well, uh, humanity is humanity. And there is nothing new under the sun when we look at our current situation. Uh, We can find this eons back in history and even in church history. In fact, it was uh, 4th century B.C. statesman and orator Demosthenes who said this. He said, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines we keep for the care of our daily, our daily care of our persons, but wives we keep for legitimate children. In other words, we just got this three-way thing going on here, and whatever the need is, that's how we... How, how does this happen? How can women be so uh, degraded and downgraded and mishandled by men in society? And the church is not exempt. The church catches the disease. In fact, the Corinthian church had this disease as well, too. The Corinthian church had an individual who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother, and Paul spends the majority of chapter 5 rebuking them for that, not only the deed itself, but the church, which heartily agreed to the action. This is the church. And I guess before we get too far down on the church, we have to remember in the introduction to the book of Corinthians, 
Paul writes to the Corinthians, the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, there's a contradiction. There's a, there's a what do you call it? A, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, oxymoron. Okay? It's hard to grasp that, yes, you're sleeping with your stepmother and you're, you're part of the church of God, which is at Corinth, sanctified, called by Christ. There's a problem here in the land that we must address, and it's, it's been in the land. And this is why Paul writes to these men, to these men here in Ephesus for this, but it's repeated in Titus uh, for, for Crete as well. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. We're going to look at this term here as, as we're allowed this morning. Um, if you're following along in your notebooks, I'm on page 19 here. Those are still available by email if you, if you want one of those. But we've got to look at this phrase. What does it mean, the husband of one wife? Well, there's four appearances of this phrase in Scripture I need to walk you through. And um, it's actually very simple language in the Greek here. We see the first one appear here in 1 Timothy 3.2. An overseer must be the husband of one wife. We see it again if you drop down to verse 12 of chapter 3. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife. We see kind of a reverse um, uh, use of this in 1 Timothy 5.9. If you want to glance in chapter 5, verse 9, he speaks to women. Let a widow, uh, a woman who has lost her husband, be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old, uh, this is a special care list that was in the church that women um, who have lost their husband at that age should be cared for in the church. Um, but um, not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, it says. So there's kind of the female counterpart of whatever we're talking about today. Husband of one wife, wife of one husband, um, and having a reputation for good works, etc., etc., and then it appears again, of course, if you're there in Titus 1.6, and it's good to just flip back and forth between Timothy and Titus. If a man be above reproach, the husband of one wife is repeated there again. Now, in the Greek, this is a very simple construct. In Greek, it is mias gunaikas andra, or mias gunaikas aner. Mias is simply the Greek word one. It's very simple to interpret. One. Um, gunaikos, we get the word uh, gynecology from that. It just is a Greek word for woman. And then andra, or aner, is the Greek word for man. We, we have connotations of that even in, today as well. And so what this means literally in the Greek, and there's some debate, but it means that an overseer must be a one wife or woman Man or husband, and we don't, we don't, we have some debate as to whether it should be translated husband or man, wife or woman, and I'll, I'll work you through some of this. But it's very simple: three little Greeks, uh, Greek words. An overseer must be an individual who is of a one woman type of guy, and that's really the the interpretation of the text here. Now. With that simplicity of the Greek language, there comes all kinds of messy interpretations that have been 
place next to the purity of this truth, uh, which I just have to hack through some of the weeds. I hope you'll be patient with me today here. Uh, I got to work through some of this so that we know very clearly what the apostle is referring to there. What does he mean, this uh, man of one wife or man of one woman? What, What is he getting at here? Well, some believe that Paul is saying that the overseer must be married to the church. And this is definitely a Roman Catholic view. As you know, Roman Catholic priests are to be single, but they are to be single, but also married in a sense. It's marriage in a metaphorical sense. Married to the church, and the church is your spouse, and the church is what you are to be devoted to. Those holding to this view, and not all Roman Catholics do, I should say, they, they don't root that teaching of celibacy in this text, but they will go to this. It's a clumsy attempt to, to propagate a celibate priesthood. Well, the problem with that is all other qualifications here that you see in the text are literal qualifications. I mean, they're, they're not metaphorical whatsoever, so why would this first one be metaphorical in nature? Uh, would you also have metaphorical verse... Um, Four, one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control. Well, who's, who are the children of a priest? Well, you'd have to say it's metaphorical, and you, you just get into all kinds of messes when you treat it that way. Further, this view contradicts Paul's clear teaching of 1 Corinthians 7, advising young men from the temptations of singlehood. And that if you have temptations as a single young man or older man, you are instructed by the word of the Lord to be married. And so the priest is no exception. It doesn't say, unless you're a priest, if you struggle with temptation, and by the way, I, I want you to know, I, I mention these with, with a great heaviness of heart. I, I have worked very closely with a number of Roman Catholic priests, and I love them. They are dear to me. They carry a reverence about them that I think is missing in a lot of Protestant circles. However, they are often in bondage in this very issue here, where God has allowed marriage as a good and gracious gift, but the church has forbidden it. And Paul warns about that. If you just look in 1 Timothy 4.3, we know this can't be true. Uh, it says, um, later times are coming. Hypocrisy, liars, people who are seared in their own conscience as with a brand, branding iron. Well, who are you talking about, Paul? Verse 3, men who forbid marriage. That's a, that's a big-time problem to be forbidding marriage, especially with the passions that can burn in the human nature for that desire to be with another person intimately. It's a sad thing. And so I say these things, folks, with the absolute utmost compassion. I don't condemn a man who is caught in that situation, but that's not our view today. I, I need to move on. That's not what we're focusing on today. Married to the church, it really doesn't make sense. Secondly, a view is posited that that the overseer must be married and not celibate. This is not a very prominent view. Some people will take this as regulative, meaning uh, an overseer then must be above reproach and he must be a husband. He must be married. He's got to have a wife or he can't lead in worship and service and all of that. Well, that wouldn't really make sense either. I've known a number of people who are single in the ministry. In fact, Paul even says, I'm making a case that if you are married, you're going to have trouble in the ministry and trouble in life. And a single person can be wholly devoted to the Lord. So there's benefits even to being single, but there are also benefits to being married. 
and I could go on uh, with the problems of this view. Um, the emphasis is really in the Greek on the word one and not the, not the candidate's marital status. Uh, Paul says husband of one wife, not husband of a wife. Um, you know, look for a man who has a wife. That, that just doesn't seem like there would be really any reason for that, though practically there would be. And uh, Paul, the problem with this is Paul spoke of himself being single, and I suspect Timothy at this time in his age was probably single as well, so the very two men enforcing this standard are disqualified by the standard if it is that view. And I've got a few more other reasons I don't want to bore you with why this is. One other I'll add is the First Timothy 5.9 passage with the widows, because whatever it means for the men, it means for the women as well. Let the widows be the wife of one man. Uh... Yeah. In other words, put a widow on the list only if she was married. That, that doesn't make any sense for this view here. And, and let's move on with that. We can, we can write off those first two. Now, a third view, which is not a bad view, I don't think it's the correct view, is that the overseer must be monogamous and not practice polygamy or have concubines. As you know, Israel's history was plagued with the issue of polygamy. Wherever we saw polygamy in the Old Testament, we, we saw tragedy, we saw devastation. But this issue of polygamy, we believe, uh, although it was real at one time, we don't think it was really alive and well at this era in New Testament history. Yeah, it probably had some skirmishes that were still happening where men would have many wives, but, uh, and Roman law did have some provisions for this if, if uh, certain pre-existing situations were there that you, you wouldn't have to divorce. But the problem with this view is that most believe polygamy was very rare at this time, not a pronounced concern where we would be warning men to stay, you know, to be disbarred if you had more than one wife um, in this situation. And by the way, it's, it's off topic, but um, missions to Africa really face this issue. Um, men who <clears throat> had several wives <clears throat> for, for many different reasons then became Christians and said, well, what do we do? Do we divorce all of them except the first one? Do we divorce all of them except the one we like? You know, what do we do? <laughs> and missionaries said... We, we, we keep this how it is. We, we have to start from this day forward, and we have to, we have to move forward, kind of like uh, a medical doctor would say, we're, we're, you know, okay, your situation is this, and we're taking you where you're at, and we're going to move forward. From, we're not going to spend time talking about how did we get here. We're here. And, and so this is a problem. This is why I'm not mad at this view, but I just don't think this issue is talking about polygamy. Also, go back to 5.9. You've got to import the same meaning for this widow here. Let her be on the widow's list if, she, list if she's not a polygamist. And that just seems very strange because that was unknown. Talk about a double standard, right? A guy could have a ton of wives, but a woman having several husbands unheard of. Absolutely unheard. Why is that, by the way? Why is that? I don't even want to ask that question. <laughs> it's telling us something about why Paul is saying this today here. So let's discard view number three. I want to give you number four as well today. Number four is a little bit more challenging to work through, 
And it has caused no small amount of bondage in the church today. So I'm going to slow things down a little bit here. And I'm going to work through view number four because I want to give you freedom today. I don't want you to be in bondage over this issue of the husband of one wife. I want you to be free when you walk out of the door today. And if this is your view, I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I'm not mad at you. I just think there's a better view. So what is view four? View four is that Paul is saying an overseer must have been married only once and never remarried after, namely, a divorce. Okay? Now I said the D word. Now we're in hot water. But this view says that an overseer must be married only once, never remarried, especially after divorce. Now, I don't have the time to get into the biblical teaching on divorce. We're going to touch on that a little bit and remarriage. But I want to just state the position here. This is saying essentially that an overseer must be married only once in a lifetime, never remarried, and that the overseer must not have uh, underwent divorce. This was held in the early church, and it uh, extends into many congregations today. Some Bible translations don't help the matter. The NRSV actually translates this. If, If you have this version, your version this morning says that the overseer must be above reproach, married only once. It says that in that translation. Well, every translation has choices to make. Every translation has men serving on the translation committee who have certain theological opinions and historical baggage that they bring into the translation here. And the NRSV has done that. They've made the choice to do that. Now listen, no doubt it is arguable that a man... Let's just say this. There's less issues associated with a man who has never... Uh, underwent a divorce and remarriage than one who has not. I'll give that. There's, there's less um, stickiness to have to work through and unscrambling the, the scrambled egg of the, whatever situations were there. But I want to tell you here, right from the start, there are problems with this view, big problems with it. One is that there is language available to the Apostle Paul to say married only once in the Greek. He can, he can use this language. In fact, um, if you have Grudem's Systematic Theology, which I commend to every one of you, it's not, it's not, um, it's not inspired, but it is, uh, it is a very thorough treatment of a lot of issues. On page 917 uh, of that text, Wayne Grudem addresses the Greek language that is available to the Apostle Paul, which says married only once. Why didn't he use that? Why didn't Paul use that in this text if he was so concerned that we don't put up an elder who has some baggage? Uh, We've already said an elder is not perfect. We've already said an elder, this does not mean you've never made mistakes. It means that you are in a present tense mode of being above reproach. That's an elder. And, and so married only once is available to the apostle. He didn't use it. Furthermore, our Lord himself in uh, Matthew, or um, uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew 119, the, the phrase of Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph, and it was said by Matthew there that uh, Joseph was going to put her away. He uses the Greek word apolio, which means divorced. He could have used, you know, not a divorced man. Don't put a divorced man up if he wanted to prohibit divorce directly here, a divorced man. Secondly, why there's a problem with this is Paul allows and encourages remarriage for believers in general, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 
particularly 7.15, 1 Timothy 4, uh, uh, 5.14, 1 Timothy 4.3, encouraging marriage, encouraging widows to remarry for fear of burning with lust and passion. Get married, ladies. And the, the result is that it is better to marry than to burn, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.9. This would be certainly true of singles not yet married, certainly true of widows who desire to be married, and I believe certainly true of lawfully divorced individuals. Now, I know I'm on super, super hot water here because divorce is a controversial topic in the church, but I want to tell you something. There is such thing as a biblical divorce. It's nasty stuff, no doubt about it, but it's, it's the reality we live. We live in a fallen world, broken stage, broken people, living out their broken lines on this, on this broken play that we call life. And life is messy. And life can be dirty. And God knows that. And he gave provisions in the scripture, Matthew 19, provisions for adultery, and 1 Corinthians 7, provisions for abandonment, of the spouse to remarry. I believe the church needs to, to grow up to get a backbone on this issue because so many churches are like, oh, we're just not going to talk about divorce. And you know what? There are, there are literally thousands, tens of thousands of people who have underwent this situation or who are facing this situation and they have a spouse that's this way or a spouse that's that way and the church is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I believe pastors and elders need to read their Bibles and understand why those provisions are in there to come along the side of those people who, who tread those waters. I, I have worked closely. I remember one that was so perplexed with this issue. And, and I, I mean, I don't encourage a divorce ever. I mean, there'd be cases I would have, you know. I mean, guys, I'm going to tell you, there's, there's been cases where I've said, this is over. This is over, and there are provisions for you. Oh, but I fear God. I fear God. And I like that. I, I, I'm not diminishing that. And if you and your conscience, ultimately it's your decision that has to be made. But I'm telling you, the church has, has neglected their duty when it comes to walking the saints through this rugged, rugged terrain. Oh, you're just on your own. And that's how a lot of pastors handle it because they just don't want to get their, their hands dirty. But it contradicts, thirdly, our Lord's teaching on the biblical grounds for divorce. Lenski says, were the, were the woods so full of men that had second wives that a bar had to be put up lest they crowd the ranks of the ministry? It's just really a nonsensical. I'm not mad at you if this is your view. But you say, Eli, wow, what are we left with? I mean, you've ripped them all apart. What are we left with when it comes to what does it mean, the husband of one wife? Well, I believe that it does not mean you're married to the church. It does not mean you can't be single. It does not merely mean that you cannot be a polygamist. You can't be. And it does not mean that you cannot be divorced or remarried. What the text means is that the overseer must be faithful in the marital and specifically the sexual realm. Oh, oh, that's, that's understandable, right? Do you remember the introduction that I gave today? Ah, I'm starting to see now because, you know, we put all these rules and bars on things when really, what has this whole series been about? Folks, it's been about the man's character. It's been about what the man stands for in the marital realm that he is currently in and specifically I believe it is a reference to the sexual realm. 
This is consistently rendered by the new international version. The, the NIV says that an overseer must be, quote, faithful to his wife. Now we're getting somewhere. This is the freedom that I want to afford you. If you find yourself in a situation, you say, well, well, I'd like to be an elder, but I've got this kind of thing that's on my mind here. Well, I believe the text means to be faithful to his wife. In particular, it requires the overseer, if he's married, to be singularly devoted to his wife, i.e. a one-woman man. Remember our Greek? I'm translating this as a man of one woman. That's what I believe this means. Someone who is singularly devoted to his wife. This now calls the overseer to demonstrate faithfulness to his marriage vows if he's married, But if he's single, it prohibits sexual indulgence or fornication on the part of a single leader in the church, a leader who is single, an elder who is single. Now, I have a ton of reasons for the support of this here. This is the most widely held view of most conservative commentators here. There's lots of reasons. I'm just going to throw them at you really quick here uh, because I think you're convinced. This is the last view I'm aware of, by the way, so you only have so many options to choose from this morning. It's the most natural reading of the text, right? When you, when you get down to it, this is consistent with what he's getting at here. No gymnastics have to be done. Um, this is the, the natural common sense rendering of the text. This view not only excludes polygamy, view number three, uh, th- this, is, this is consistent with that, but it elevates the person's virtue above the issue of just mere marital status. It elevates it to faithfulness in the sexual realm. Faith, uh, uh, fidelity to the marriage is what it is. Now, since thirdly, since marital fidelity is in view, it follows perfectly then that deacons likewise ought to have this standard. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their own household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You ought to be proud of your position as a deacon in the church. Why? Because you're faithful. You've been measured as faithful. And it says, by the way, test these individuals. Make sure of this. And then fourthly, it's the only view, once again, that makes sense with 1 Timothy 5.9. Remember our ladies? Our ladies here, the widows, let a widow be put on the list, only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been faithful. That's the idea here. Faithful to her husband. All of these in conclusion, our character traits. And so we emphasize the fact that, I, I should just add this, by the way, you can be married to one wife, you, you can be in the status, the marital status of one wife, and you can be far, far from being a one-woman man. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Oh yeah, on the surface it looks like, oh yep, box is checked, married only once, or whatever, the, whatever your view is going to be, but you can be far from faithful to that woman. Cases in point, all the men that I read about this morning. And so it is best to understand this phrase, that the candidate for oversight, if he's married, he is a man who is solely devoted to that woman. And if he's single, he is free from fornication and he is a model of sexual purity. And this can, ha- this can occur. 
This can occur today for you. Whether or not you're thinking about becoming an elder in this church, whether or not you've ever dreamed of becoming a pastor, it doesn't matter because as we've already established, it is a standard for all of us, men, women, congregants, whoever the case may be, young men, young women, who we're going to talk about in just a little bit here. But this man cannot be taken a hold of. He cannot be charged in this area. He is a man of one woman. I believe that's our proper translation today. Now you say, wow, Grady, like we can all go home or we can all get into these pies and soups. Hold on, not so fast. Part of being true to a text is telling you not only what it means, but what it implies to our lives, right? Right? We, we, need to, we need to have some application here for just a few moments. And we need to, I've thought of a few different groups here. We've talked about the fact that this whole thing is addressing the man's moral character, not his marital status. And so we have to ask, what, what does this look like in a congregation here? What, what does this aspect of being a one-woman man look like for Chef Church? And it's good that we ask these questions because I'm trying to insulate you today. If I were a carpenter, if I were a builder, and we lived in a very cold climate or one that was very challenging to the residents that lived there, what would I do? I would go to Menards and I'd find some insulation, right? I don't know what the R value is today. I think when we built our garage, what would it have been? Six or um, four inch studs, what's that? R12? R11. And six inch can get you what? I don't know. Yeah, and um, I've heard R34, like, what, if you blow it in, how, how, how warm can you get the place? So whatever, however thick you, you want to make those walls. So today, I'm selling insulation to the saints. All of you have this foundation, which is the household of God. And we must insulate the household of God, and so we must apply this to our lives here. So what are you talking about, Eli? I'm going to first talk to, to the single men today, to the single men. Some of you single men say, Eli, great message, but hey, guess what? I'm not married. I'm not married. Did you notice? Well, I did notice, and, and that might be something you need to work on here in, the, in a few years if you're coming of that age, but what you really need to work on before you're married is you need to work on becoming this one woman man as a single person, as a single individual. I want to ask you, young men today, are you a flirt? Are you a, a ladies' man? Uh, are you a, a looker? Because, well, after all, I'm single. Are you a player? And the question is, are you modeling this? I know you're not married, but it doesn't have to do with marital status, young man. It has to do with character. Are you modeling this? Or are you dating around? Are you, are you playing the field? And I want to ask you a pointed question, young men. Are you potentially, now that you are a Christian, now that you have seen the light, and you've, you've been called out of darkness, are you now jeopardizing, possibly, your future role as serving in an elder in the church? Because now you've been served, you've been informed, you know the standard, and yet you're playing around with it. You're toying with the standard. And so I just want to ask you, are you modeling this? Are you working towards this? Or are you jeopardizing future leadership at Chef Church? Who needs you, by the way? 
I have said again and again, there is not a long line of men standing up for this calling, but you know what? There's going to be fewer if you disqualify yourself at this very young age. And so I'm pleading with you here. I'm passionate about this issue. Don't be like those men who want the benefits of the married life without the responsibility of it, without the commitment of it. And as a result, you are defrauding other people. You know, that's probably enough, but I'm not going to stop there. I want to take you to 1 Thess chapter 4 to show you how serious this issue is. 1 Thess 4, 1, Paul writes that beloved, beloved church. It says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as you how, to, uh, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you actually do walk. Young men, I'm not pounding you out today. I know you walk in godliness, but it says excel still more. Verse 2, For you know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. You ever wonder what the will of God for your life is, young men, young women? What am I going to do with my life? What's God's will for me? It's not lost. It's found in verse 3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Your purity. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. Uh, we're talking your body, young men, young women, that you each know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and in honor. That's what we're talking about here. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then he says in verse 6 something really strange here. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. What does this mean, defraud your brother? I believe what it means is that every man of God, every woman of God, has what we could call a divine right to enter the marriage bond in purity. I believe that is God's design. And, and that when we, when we take what is not ours because of the Gentilish lustful passions, that we cross the line and we take what really belonged to another man. Every man, every woman has the right to enter marriage in purity and we don't want to mess with that. We want to retain that and we want to protect that. And this is very strong language, I understand. And so single men, I'll tell you what my college pastor told me. Don't tell a woman you love her unless you're ready to put a rock on her finger. And, and, and young ladies, don't, don't be captivated by a man who wants to engage in the physical union and tells you that he loves you. That, that, that is also an oxymoron. That, you need, young ladies, you need to be strong in this area. Men, you need to lead in this area. But young ladies, you need to be strong in this area and say, no, 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 you don't love me. You lust me. You know, let's use the right word. Because if you loved me, my 
purity would be the utmost concern for you. And as difficult as this is, we have to hear this. Beware of the man that captivates you, young lady. But here is a student who's pure. Here's a college man who's pure. Here's a single man who's pure. We need to think about this issue of defrauding. Single men, you did it. Now, how about the married men? The married men. You have to be this model, gentlemen. This passage teaches that we must be as married men exclusively and totally devoted to our wives, not just for the elder. And we would want this to be our character, right? We are not perfect. We understand this. But we do want strong marriages. We want good marriages where we care for our wives and where we're not flirting with other women. This implies a loyalty and a faithfulness. Uh, Wiest comments on this text and he says, it should be this man's nature to isolate and centralize his love for his wife. It is an isolation process that now happens. It, It is a centralization process that is occurring. And so married men, I just have to ask the same question I asked of the single men. Are you flirtatious? You're married. Now it's fine to flirt with your wife. But are you flirtatious with other women? Are you kind of, this, this idea that maybe, maybe you're open or, or whatever the case may be, it implies this faithfulness that needs to be present. This can be subtle. Those of you who have the binder, I was going to make some copies of this. This is pretty fascinating. Page 24 in your binder. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that I've entitled... Uh, Descent into divorce. Descent into divorce. 25 steps to marital breakup. Awesome, right? But it is good because it tells you, you hear guys, oh, he, he just fell into this. Nah, it doesn't work that way. There are at least 25 steps that have to happen before that occurs. And it begins with emotional readiness, diminishing closeness between spouses, a growing awareness of a particular person, time spent thinking about that person, their attractiveness, their intelligence, they're better, they're younger. It, it then moves to an innocent meeting, unplanned or expected, who knows, but it's just innocent, we're just talking. Time spent comparing, oh, this, this person, not my wife, but oh, you know all the positives about her. Daydreaming, that turns into public lingering. That then moves to intentional meeting, private meeting, away from others' views. Be careful. Be careful, married men. Women as well. You find yourself in these private meetings away from all other people. Thinking about good times, meeting more frequently. Then the isolation becomes pleasurable isolation. You see how it's just getting deeper and deeper. Then that turns into supportive touching. Oh, I know, I know. Then affectionate embracing. Then rationalization starts to kick in. I deserve a good relationship. It's not sexual. It's not sexual. And then passionate embracing. Kissing, by the way, which is the last trip before the fall then sexual contact, then guilt and fear, then hiding, then covering tracks, then lying to save face, continuing instead of confessing, denying when confronted, the gig is up, you're caught red-handed. 
But then it doesn't stop there. Then we justify the actions. If you loved me better, if you were better, gooder, prettier, smarter, you know, all these self-justifying, blame-shifting. And then 25, actively seeking divorce. There's a lot of steps that can be there prior to the actual descent landing at rock bottom here. But that's, that's addressing the married man. I just want to, I want to, Go to the book of Proverbs, if you will, really quick here. Proverbs chapter 6 speaks to this issue directly. 6 verse 27 asks rhetorically, Can a man take fire in his bosom (laughs) and his clothes not be burned? I mean, can you imagine? I'm just going to be at the campfire tonight. I'm just going to scoop a bunch of coals up and burning logs and just just hug them. (laughs) I mean, duh! Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And then he illustrates it. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry, right? I mean, yeah, there'll be some consequences, but are you really going to... I mean, he's hungry, but when he's found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give the substance of his house. The woman, or the one rather, who commits adultery with a woman is, and this is really a soft sell of this word, lacking sense. That's a, that's a nice, polite American way of saying stupid. <laughs> the one who commits adultery is stupid. He, would de- he, he who would destroy himself does it. I have uh, walked and lived with many, many men throughout my career. And I will tell you this, I have found in more cases than not, there are exceptions. Divorce, especially due to adultery, ruins a man. It ruins a man. It ruins him financially. It ruins him mentally in cases. And here it says that you're destroying yourself. Wounds and disgrace he will find in his reproach. There's the word we're talking about here. That's the banner qualification. His reproach will not be blotted out for jealousy enrages a man and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be content though you give him many gifts. It's over as far as that relationship is concerned. That's, that's the married men. This, this is heavy stuff today. And it's a high standard, and, and we understand this. You say, well, Eli, but what about King David? Hmm? What about King David, right? Man after God's own heart, man of war, man of strength, right? King David. Well, what about King David? What about him? We read about him. You don't have to turn there in 1 Kings 15. I understand David. I love David. I love David. He was a man of music, yet he had enough backbone and he'll pick a fight when he needs to pick a fight. And he won't walk away when he shouldn't walk away. I I love David. All of us do. The man after God's own heart. But have you read 1 Kings 15.4? It says, But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life. That's David. 
Oh, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Oops, oops. David has this beautiful legacy. Man of God, man of war, man of music. Ah, except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. What are you talking about there? Bathsheba? And we know the story here. And so it's just a reminder that even men of God, men after God's own heart can fall to this, and that's your legacy, men. And you have to be careful with that. I want to address the divorced men as well. Divorced women also. Listen, you should know by now, life is messy. Life is messy. It ain't clean. It's not a bed of roses. I just want you to know that this very text tells us that there is life after divorce. There is grace after divorce. There is forgiveness. There's all kinds of reasons that could, led, could have led you to this, this day. We're talking about from this day forward. We're talking about your present tense character here. We're not really all that interested, especially in your BC life. God called you out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and enjoy this kingdom. God is the God of second chances, is he not? And I know that he has given possibly a number of people in this sanctuary today those second chances. I don't know. I don't know you as well as I would like to, but I know he's the God of second chances, and I know that you can aspire to be a one-woman man today or a one-man woman in the case of our ladies. And then just to the church family as we wrap this up, to the men and women and everybody, we need to have as a pillar of commitment at Chef Church that we are a church that is rooted in sanctification and purity and honor. Can can we just have that as a standard here? Can we just be known as that? You know, we're known in this community for a few things. We're known as the church who loves, remember that? We're the church who loves. But we're also known, I hope, I trust, that we, we are known that, oh, that church has a high view of God. And that that church has a high view of Scripture. And a high view of leadership who are above reproach, and it starts with being a one-woman man or a a one-man woman. This should be the desire of every one of our hearts today. Well, I have so much more I could say about that. I I have a section here on how how do you become this? What are some practical things you can do? We, We could leave this for another time. I talk about avoiding tempting situations. There's all kinds of literature, guys, all kinds of videos, all kinds of movies, and you, you have to know when you're going down the path You have to be strong. That's the putting off principle. But there's also the putting on of walking by the Spirit. If we walk by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. There's communication with your spouse that needs to occur. Men have different needs than ladies. There's emotional needs. There's physical needs. There's visual stimuli that that occurs that can can trip you up in a second. And you, you have to know the battle is in the mind. Communicate that. Build accountability. And if you're entrapped in something, if something has you bound, you know, people will say, well, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Are you struggling or are you giving in? Are, are you struggling or, or are you trapped? And, and if so, you know, we saw the, the thing up uh, on the beginning here today that your elders are available. They will, they will work with you. They will counsel you. They will help you in this area. 
but, but seek biblical counsel. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, both, Satan wants your marriage. He, he, he wants you miserable. He wants your marriage to break. And, and he wants it not just to make you miserable. That is part of his plan. But he wants it because it is the marriage union that reflects Christ and the church. And he wants to obliterate that and shadow that and smudge that as much as he possibly can. You have to understand he wants your marriage. Don't give him a foothold in this area. As we wrap up, I want to just share a brief um, Facebook post. It um, was a heartfelt post that a young man put up on Facebook recently that went absolutely viral when he did it. Uh, He titled it... um, Don't say no to marriage. Say yes and keep saying yes until the day you die. Listen to this. (laughs) He says, uh, I do can be two of the hardest words to say. And it's no wonder that many fiancés get cold feet at the altar. What if there's someone else out there who's even better? Despite those inevitable doubts, one man's case for a lifelong commitment left thousands of couples extremely touched. Dale Partridge, an entrepreneur and author, took to Facebook to explain why marriage to only one woman never gets boring. (laughs) The secret? Appreciate how your partner changes over time. The full post reads as such, quote, men are so worried that marriage will leave them with only one woman for the rest of their lives. That's simply not true, he says. I fell in love with a 19-year-old rock climber, married a 20-year-old animal lover, started a family with a 24-year-old mother, then built a farm with a 25-year-old homemaker. Today, I am now married to a 27-year-old woman of wisdom. I love that, 27-year-old woman of wisdom, yeah. He says, if your mind is healthy, you'll never get tired of one woman. You'll actually become overwhelmed with how many beautiful versions of her you get to marry over the years. Don't say no to marriage. Say yes, and keep saying yes until the day you die. With over 275,000 shares, his heartfelt words obviously struck a chord. No offense, one commentator wrote, or commenter wrote, but this is some seriously cheesy cornball writing. (laughs) And he says, and it puts into words exactly what I was feeling staring at my wife earlier tonight. That's the idea, folks. That's what it's all about. And I believe if Partridge's words ring true, it sounds like the best is yet to come in that marriage. That'd be fun to check in later on, wouldn't it? And say, well, what is she now? What has she become now? But we need to view our, our spouses this way. Yes, there is beauty in the restriction of God's word. Oh, I don't get to get... Listen, it, it, is, it is saving you so much pain and trouble. I'm, t- I'm talking to you as one in my youth who didn't understand this concept. I'm talking to you as one who didn't have a, a pastor ranting and raving this stuff from the pulpit when I grew up. I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it. It was avoided. And guys, I'm saying this stuff because I love you, but I'm saying it because I've walked this path. And, and so I hope you're encouraged today. And, and, you know, if you're feeling like, well, I haven't been this guy. I haven't, I, I'm not this guy. I just want to encourage you that today can be the day. Maybe, maybe you need to come to Christ to understand that, you know, he is the perfect example of this. But maybe you need to rededicate your commitment to Christ and say that from this day forward, would you say that today? Would all of us say this today? That from this day forward, we will commit or recommit to be that man of passion, that, that man of, of character 
and, and, and principle and that man of purity when it comes to our relationships with the opposite sex. Let's stand as we pray together and dismiss our service. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I, I just bless your wonderful name today that you have allowed this message to go forth. I, I, I so rejoice in the fact that you have built a body here of strong saints that can endure this, that can endure the content, that it can endure the, the length. Lord, may they forgive me for taking such extensive time on this, but Lord, it, it needs to be done. Father, I pray for the other churches as well. Um, we are proud of Chef, but we, we don't want to be an isolated island either. We, we want to encourage other pastors, other teachers, other bodies of Christ, your body, to be bold in these areas, Lord, and to, to face the, the tough things that need to be faced. Lord, we thank you for the men of this congregation. We sense this from day one, that the men here are strong and they are committed. Keep them that way, Lord. Keep them in your power and in your spirit. Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that we can look to our past as the past. And that is why Christ came. And we understand this, Lord. And, and so anyone dealing with guilt today, Lord, or the, the, the accusations of the enemy, Lord, may they just be free. May this day they be free of that. Place all of those on Christ. Lord, we thank you for the young men and young women in our midst. May they grow up to be the, the pillars of purity, even here in Little Hot Springs, Lord. May, may you sound forth uh, the standard that we are raising here for all the body of Christ, Lord, that the world may know that, in fact, you are God, Lord. Bless you for this. We thank you for this day. We pray your blessing also upon the food that is to come. We thank you for uh, your bountiful provision. May everyone feel welcome here uh, as we partake, Lord. And uh, may we just um, be reminded of this where, where we need to in our own lives, Lord. May your Holy Spirit go to work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.